0: Good to be here. I was talking to these guys earlier, and the, we kind of agreed that uh, we kind of feel like uh, Madonna's seventh husband on his wedding night. We know what needs to be done, we just don't know how to make it interesting. <laughs> T- Tom's not here, is he? It. <laughs> well, it's, uh, it's, it's great to be here. Uh, Dwight and George are going to lay it on us this morning. But uh, Steve and Dean told me I wanted me to share a little bit. And, and uh, I've had a couple of different things happen to me in the last couple of weeks. And, and uh, it kind of falls along with the family illness. Uh, about uh, what well, has been two weeks ago. I got a call like 4.30 in the evening and asked me to come to a deal called Parents Helping Parents. I'd never heard of it. I had no idea what it was. But I agreed to go, and I got down there and uh, went into a room. There was about 35 people, and uh, most of them couples. And you talk about doom and gloom. Those people were absolutely wiped out, and they were, they were parents and grandparents of kids who have or incarcerated or in treatment or out on the streets or what have you. And uh, as I kind of looked around there, I realized what the problem was is those guys come together and they just talk about their problems with no solution. And uh, so what happened was we I had uh, two young people with me. Uh, one girl had about a year, another gr- uh, young man had about two years, and they started it out. And I could tell that those people were hooked in and so thirsty for a solution to something that they were all about, you know, listening to, to, to a solution of, of Alcoholics Anonymous. And uh, what I saw happen was Alcoholics Anonymous in action. You know, in a matter of an hour, we turned that room totally around. And when that thing was over, they wouldn't let us go. They had us cornered up. There was laughter. There was people hugging. It was an amazing demonstration of, of, of a message of hope. I thought BJ brought a tremendous message last night of hope, and I think that is the message that Alcoholics Anonymous brings forward: is, is there is hope. Uh, this two weeks ago, this uh, well, it'd be three weeks now. Come this coming Tuesday, uh, I got a. A phone call that none of us want. And uh, to back up just a little bit, about 12 years ago, I sponsored, a, or I did, I did not sponsor, I worked with a young man, very, very young, 17 years old, got in a little trouble, he ended up in Alcoholics Anonymous, worked with him briefly. Uh, for whatever reason, he didn't stay with us. And uh, two years after he left, His twin brother showed up in Alcoholics Anonymous, and I've sponsored him for eight years now. Three weeks ago, he called me on a Tuesday afternoon, and he is absolutely out of his mind, screaming and bawling and what have you. And I said, you know, settle down and tell me what's going on. You've got to tell me what's what's going on. Well, his twin brother had killed his wife and 16-month-old daughter, and then shot himself. Now, that's uh, yeah, that's the worst of the worst. I just absolutely. But what happened was, is this young man that I sponsored was able to go to his family. And he was the pillar the entire family has leaned on and been. Uh, and that's why we get sober, you know. So when those types of things, hopefully they'll never happen. But if they, something like that does come about, you know. The principles and the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous afford us an opportunity to be of service to the people that we damaged and hurt so much. The, uh, when I think about, there's some word in our literature talks about more will be revealed, and I think for, for what that means to me is that as time goes on, the depth of my selfishness and self-centeredness constantly comes to me. Just a little bit lower level. You know, I thought I did a decent job of when I did an inventory and all that kind of stuff. But as time goes on and I continue that inventory process, what I realize is that the magnitude of my selfishness and self-centeredness is, is unbelievable. It's not measurable. And, uh, you know, that, that. thank God. we're. I think we're the luckiest people in the world. You know, lots of people go through this world and never have that opportunity to do that inventory and kind of understand why that. We have such a hard time with life. Um, you know, the, when Bill Wilson was in Towns Hospital, Abby brought him a book, and Varieties of Religious Experiences by William James. And uh, if you've ever tried to read that, you need about a Ph.D. to, to really get into it. You know. <laughs> it's a little bit heavy for this country boy, I'll tell you for sure. But Bill was able to read that while he was still in Towns Hospital, and, and the way his mind worked as is, is I vision it, was that he read all those case histories, and what he came out of that was all those people who were not necessarily alcoholics or addicts or what have you. They were people that were just absolutely crushed by life. And, and Bill read all those case histories, and what he found was that all those people had three things in common. Great pain and suffering, complete deflation, and a cry out for help. And that's, I think that's, that's where our three pertinent ideas, I believe, come from. I don't know that. I just, it just seems to me like that's a natural thing. The, the damage, and I think I talked about this last year, but of all the terrible, terrible things that I did, and I, I, trust me, I did them on a daily basis, my my dad died when i was eight years old so as a result of an injury he received overseas in a on a job and uh, they sent him stateside he was sick for months and months and months and finally he eventually died no woman ever loved a man more than my mother loved my daddy and uh, i can remember going to her the, her house and i said mom i need a hundred dollars and i told her this lie that i had a job that i needed a little money just to kind of get me by until until the job you know, i could get a payday she knew it was a lie i knew it was a lie you know but she said well honey i'm going to Al and she says those ladies down there just tell me that i can't give you any more money <laughs> I didn't know what Al-Anon was, but I knew it had a lot to do with my cash flow.
1: <laughs>
0: but what I told that woman next was had to be one of the most horrible things that a human being could possibly do to their mother. And what I said was, if you don't give me that $100, I'm going to take that overseas job where they'll pay me a bonus. See, I reached in her heart, and I grabbed it, and I squeezed it, and I turned it, and I jerked it right out. And I'll never forget, if I lived to be 100, her writing that check out, and that tear landing on that check, and that ink running all over it. And see, I was so far out in that thing that I didn't allow her the dignity to take that thing to the grocery store or somewhere and cash it. I took it to a beer joint and cashed it there, just confirming what she already knew. You know, thank God, you know, I, she, I was 28 years sober when she passed away. I was 14 years sober when my dad passed away. And what happened out of the, as a result of Alcoholics Anonymous, I got the mom and dad that I always wanted, and they got the son that they always wanted. I was with both of them when they left this world. And it was a powerful, powerful thing though, that when they left here, everything had been said and everything had been done, and I was able to let them go. Uh, you know, my heart went out to B.J. last night when he was talking about his dad and thinking about how horrible that would be to be still in the cups when that thing happens. It's millions and millions of things to be grateful for. But more than anything, I think my relationship with my family and those very close to me it's where it ought to be as a direct result of Alcoholics Anonymous. I appreciate you all, and I think, George, were you the one that didn't show up last year? No, no it's that one.
1: <laughs>
0: I wasn't going to bring that up. It just slipped out. I got stuck up here by myself for an hour last year, you know.
1: They hadn't healed up
0: yet, so. Uh. George, you want to come get it? Sure. All right.
2: Good morning, everybody. My name is George Jones, no relation to the other one, and I am an alcoholic. My sobriety date is October 31st of 2002. Um, I'm a member of the Primary Purpose Group of Wilson. Never thought I'd be saying that. Principal food people looking at me like, Um, wow. Joe, I want to thank you for saying that again. Me and my girlfriend listened to you coming down the highway last night, and it just opened up a lot of doors that I guess I had closed subconsciously because, I mean, no alcoholic sober today wants to think about that stuff, but they need to, at least I need to, just like I need to remember that I'm an alcoholic because I don't ever, ever want to put my family through what I put them through. Um, if they could see me now. Um, we talk about um, alcoholism being a family illness. And, and I guess the, the denial of the illness while I was drinking, 30-plus years, I never saw that. Because the line that would always come out of my mouth is, it's my money. I'm the only one hurting me. The only problem is you guys keep messing with my drink and leave me alone. You know, I could never I had blinders on. You know, you ever see the heck, heck of an analogy. The Budweiser Clydesdales, um, their blinders are like this. Mine were like this. Um, I was born and raised in uh, New York City, Staten Island. Um, my mother's from, well, I got one. I should have known with, with the Giants hat on. Go Giants, Mark. <clears throat> I'm done. I'm in trouble now. Um, I have to behave. I was okay. I was okay. I looked at Dwight. I looked at Joe. I looked at Dean, and everything was good. And then Tom I walked in the room, and you know now I'm nervous all over again.
1: <laughs> he just has that
2: effect when he comes into the room. Um, growing up in my house, I guess alcohol was a social, socially acceptable. What I remember about my dad: my dad is a Marine. Um, to this day, at 70 years old. But he never, he never said, I love you. He was a disciplinarian. I'm sure Rick in the room can relate to that. Um, but he showed his love by doing what he did for the family. He paid the bills, he kept the roof over our head, he kept clothes on our back, and he made sure we stayed in school. And I have the marks on my body to this day to prove that he was a disciplinarian. <laughs> But what I remember about my dad, he didn't talk much during the week. But on the weekend we had, back then, some of you guys in here are probably too young, you know, like Tom's, remember those little mini bars they had? And my dad had one of those in the, uh, in the corner. And even as a child, I was curious, like the name, George. Um,
1: <laughs>
2: I was an observer by nature, you know, and, and I used to watch him during the week. And I don't think I, I, I respected my dad. I probably feared him more than I respected him. Um, but when I saw him drink, it just kind of changed his personality. You know, he would open up. I could even get some money out of him now. If that wasn't God back then, I don't know what was. But, of course, just like some of us in this room, no, nobody in this room has never done this. When we had the little house parties on the weekends and we'd go out and when the elders would get somewhat tipsy, the little ones would go tipsy and stealing drinks and, and, and that, whole, that whole nine yards. You know, my first good drunk was at age 12 on Christmas. I'll never forget it, not that I remembered it at the time, but I remember it now. Um, we went down, we were having a Christmas party at my house, and my grandparents owned the house down the street. They had just moved up from Virginia. And um, we went down to my uncle's house, who lived over my grandmother, and I drank a little Peel's nip. I remember drinking that, and I remember nothing. I remember my cousin went behind the counter and poured something clear into it, and the next thing I remember, I was covered with snow. (laughs) When they found me, I had made it halfway back to the house. I had fell out in the snow. I had a radio, and they said I wouldn't let go of the radio. I was trying to get up making snow angels, you know. I remember my mother. See, my dad didn't talk. My mother did all the screaming, the hollering, and, you know, when my dad got involved, it's because he was tired of hearing her talk, and when he came in, just... Furniture started moving. That's the best way to describe it, because that's all I remember. Because I was trying to dive under, and he was flipping stuff over, trying to get me. Um, But that didn't stop me. I remember being deathly sick, going to another party. And um, that just started me, you know, on a long, long road. You know, I can relate to a lot of what Joe said about the, you know, the advantage that I took of my mother. Now, through everything, and what you're about to hear, my mother never once gave up on me. You know, and when I gave up on me, she didn't give up on me. I mean, I did everything from steal money out of a pocketbook, steal her car when she was asleep. Habitual liar. You know, it got to the point where I started believing my own lies. I'm sure nobody in this room can identify with that either. Um, I stayed away from my dad because he would sit back. His famous line was, you think you're doing something new under the sun, don't you? What do you mean, Dad? You'll figure it out. See, my dad was the type that he would always say, I'll give you enough rope to hang yourself. I didn't know what that meant until he hung me. (laughs) You know, and I mean literally because I was a runner. You know, it's something about cowhide. And rawhide, what real belts used to be made out of when they were, like, this big and this long, when they hit you, what it would do to you, you know. And for me, when I saw it, I'd start running. So he solved that. That's why my girlfriend says, boy, you got some big hands. I said, well, if your dad made you put your hands together and lift you up in the air, your hands would be big, too. <clears throat> but that didn't stop me. What it did was uh, I developed, I didn't know it at the time I developed a resentment towards my dad. Um, My mother was neutral and everything, and that's another thing I had to take a look at when I came into sobriety, the positions that I continuously placed my mom in defending me when my dad wanted to throw me out the house before I was 18. You know, um, I don't know anything about social drinking, and if there are any social drinkers in the room, I would kindly ask you to leave now because I do not like you. You are are still on my poor step. I haven't got past that part yet. Um... I am a chronic al- alcoholic of the worst kind. I never drank for taste. I drank strictly for effect, you know. I had one gear that I tell my girlfriend now that she's an extremist. I had one gear wide open. <coughs> Everybody else would go to the store and get Budweiser. I could never understand Budweiser, you know. I'm going for the hard lick. I'm going for malt liquor. I'm going for something with a kick, like that can with that horse on it or the horse's head. Um, I'm trying, Dean, I'm trying. Um, You know, I remember the disappointing looks, you know, even as I listened to Joe coming down the highway. Stuff I had forgot about. And some things I never even looked at, to be honest. It was something about listening to that tape when you're focused and no distractions. Nobody talking to you because she was quiet. Um... And I remember those looks that used to be on my mother's face, uh, you know, and, and, uh, my mother used to say, you're giving me age lines, age lines, you know, or crow's feet or whatever you want to refer to them, you know, and, and I started visually seeing that stuff coming down the highway, you know. My drinking did more damage to my family than I ever imagined. And, and, you know, and and the more they say stick around, the more will be revealed, the longer I stay sober. Never think you know it all because something new always seems to come up or something will happen and it will open up a door that you never knew existed. You can identify with that, you know, which is a good thing for me because I really, really need to feel all of this. I guess when I was about 13 or 14 you know, I, I kind of gravitated away from the house. I gravitated to people who would like me, who would socially accept me. I didn't know what that was at the time, but that's what I refer to it as now. And my dad used to always say, if you keep picking your friends over this family, you can go live with your friends. You know, and I, I'd sit there, you know. I didn't, I wasn't quite ready to stand up to him because in my father's house there was only going to be one man. And the day I decided I was going to be a man was the day I was going to leave. You know, um, <laughs> my mother, I, I have a younger sister, a year younger than me, and I don't know what my mother was thinking about. Maybe she had her own experience, spiritual experience, but she waited 10 years and decided to have two more kids. So I have another younger brother, a sister. And at the time, I guess I was about 15, 15 years old. And I uh, I went out somewhere, got drunk, came in the house, and I said I was going to make some hot dogs. I was going to boil some hot dogs. Now the only problem with that is, in order to boil hot dogs, you got to have water in the pan, right? I don't have any water in the pan. I guess I thought the hot dogs were going to make their own water. I sat down at the kitchen table, and that's where I fell asleep. I remember
1: my
2: <laughs> I can laugh today, but I can assure you it wasn't funny. Now, I remember my dad snatching me up by the back of my collar, dragging me to the door, and I was coughing. The entire house was full of smoke. My mother standing on the porch in her nightgown holding my baby brother, pregnant, crying. And my dad's screaming at me, and, I, and I'm so numb, I don't know what's going on, you know. And he said, what do you have to say for yourself? And I couldn't talk. And I remember looking up at my mother, and I'm like, Ma, and she turned away from me. That's the first time. I'll never forget that. That's the first time that my mother ever turned her back on me. And she was crying, and the baby was crying. My sister was sitting there talking Stuff to me, you know, and and my dad said, get your stuff and get out of my house. You know, um, and I said, fine, you know, that illness gives you courage and stupidity. And and I said, fine. (laughs) Reality didn't hit me because it was the middle of January. And if you've been in New York in January, it's (laughs) well, it's cold. So I get out there, I'm about drunk, I get around the corner, and that cold hits me, and I sober up instantly. So drunk, the only thing I took was a pair of pants I had no coat on, I had flip-flops on, and I had shorts on. (laughs) The smart alcoholic that I am. I walked the street all that night. Now, I guess for some, that might have been their bottom, but for me, that was still getting started, you know, um manipulative as I was. You know, I stayed out, I walked all night. I crept in the backyard. Only a classic alcoholic would do this because we had a dog, a dopamine. And I kicked her out of her doghouse and I crawled in there and that's where I slept. And she sat there all night looking at me like I was crazy, you know. Um, The next day, my dad went to work. My mom stayed home and uh, I manipulated her and uh, She soft-soaked my dad once again and paid the way for me to come in the house with conditions. The first condition was, do not touch his liquor. Leave my liquor alone. Well, dad, I'm not drinking your liquor. Really? Well, I had two full bottles of gin in there and now they're two full bottles of water. How do you explain that? (laughs) For those of you who haven't tried this, please don't try this. Water and gin do not have the same effect, <laughs> and a good drinker will know the difference. <laughs> That's what I was doing, sneaking his liquor and pouring water in there, and, you know. I was wondering what those little scratch marks on the side of the label was. I said, wow, they tear these bottles up, I'm taking them out the box. My dad was <laughs> marking the bottles. Um, so I said, fine. I went and got a summer job, and most kids get a summer job, and they they buy things, you know bicycles, take the girlfriends out. I was buying beer and liquor. Um, back then, growing up in the neighborhood, you were well known. Uh, you know, I'm so glad the laws are in effect that they are today as far as serving alcohol to minors. You Because know, I was known for going to the store to get alcohol from my uncles, and then when they were hanging out, they would always send me because I was always a big guy. Height-wise, I didn't start spreading this way until I got just a little bit older you know, at age 25 now, you get it. (laughs) Um, You know, and and I remember out of defiance, I ended up in the Army, by the way. Another great alcoholic decision out of defiance. Because I uh, decided I was going to I always, I was always on this mission to live up to my dad's standards. The, the problem was, I never knew what his standards were. You know, uh, too blind to see it. If anything, you know, um, I used to always tell myself I wanted to be like him. Now, the untrue blame that I used to put on him was, I started drinking because of him. My alcoholism has absolutely nothing to do with my father, and I realized that today because for a lot of years he was my excuse and I used him as a bullseye unfairly I can say that honestly today Um, my dad's not an alcoholic he's a social drinker to this day and he's on my fourth step for that reason um so I decided I was going to go into the service and I wanted to go into the Marine Corps and back then they offered what was called a split split option training program for those who were still in high school and I was barely making it I don't know how and my dad said, well, I told him I wanted to go in the Marines. Again, trying to prove a point. He said, I'm not sending you into the Marines. You can't handle it. And that just made me mad, sitting in the recruiter's office. Now you embarrass me too, you know. I remember looking at this picture on the wall, and I saw this soldier, the stuff they I used to watch growing up on TV, like John Wayne and those old war movies. And I saw him with that helmet on, that O.D. Green, and that M-16. And, boy, I said, that's what I want to do right there. And the recruiter's... Well, recruiters, are, I guess, for another talk. But next to the devil, <laughs> if they're already in his room, you next to the devil, you are the next biggest liar on the face of the earth. Because he, he began to sell me this story about how if you sign this contract, how you're going to travel, see the world, meet exotic women, and make a whole lot of money. Well, I'm here to tell you this. None of that happened. Um, what did happen was I found the place where there were other drunks just like me. Um, I, I signed up for an infantry unit, went to a combat unit. We spent the majority of our time out in the field, so you, an alcoholic would develop quite a thirst by the time he came back to base. The average drinker, the social drinker, might go buy a six-pack, and that lasts last him a week, and I still haven't figured that one out yet. We would go and buy a case each to get started. Now, at age 21, I could drink a case of beer, any beer, and walk. That's not normal. Looking for something harder and usually got it. Got into a lot of fights, got into a lot of, I don't know how I got out of the military when honorable discharge. I guess they felt pity for me or God stepped in on a combination of both because I stayed in trouble. I got confined to the base and literally dug under the fence to go into town to get a drink and got caught coming back by gunpoint, about got shot. That would have stopped the normal person, not me. The next weekend, I'm thinking about another way to get out. They're threatening to send me to Fort Leavenworth with a mini hammer to break big rocks. And I'm still not listening to them. I think um, as far as rank goes, you ever see those charts like on the EKG machine when your heart's hooked up to it? It's doo, doo, doo. That's how my rank went. Because of my drinking it and towards the end of my career, doo, it just kind of leveled out. Finally, they said, we had enough of you. I had met a young lady when I went home on leave. I got a phone call from my dad. My dad was the type, he, he would ask you a question and he would save you the trouble of answering it because he would answer it for you. He called me and said, oh, Olivia's here. She would like to talk to you. I said, okay, great. Hey, how you doing? She gets on the phone. She says, hi. Whew, I don't believe what I'm saying is now. Anyway, maybe I'll tell my sponsor about it. She said, hi, I'm pregnant. I said, okay. And my dad gets on the phone. He says, hey, son, how you doing? You doing good? Great. You know this young lady is pregnant, right? What you going to do? You're going to get married, right? And all I remember saying is, yes, sir. So the next great uh, unspiritual awakening I had, something said, you know what, I'm tired of these people telling me what to do in the military, so I'm going to get out. Now, here they are. They're willing to help me because they realize I have a problem. And they said, young man, we will offer you X amount of dollars. You can re up, we'll give you the bonus, but you have to go see the psychologist and all sorts of stuff they had in place. I said, nah. I got out, and I got married within a year, got married. And the next great decision I had was, and don't do this at home, newlyweds, do not move across the street from your parents. (laughs) Especially when your parents like your wife more than you. (laughs) Needless to say, um, everything that I did made it across the street. There were many days that I came home the next day late from work. I was just a little bit late coming home the next day, um, (laughs) broke. And my mother standing on the porch. She had taken off from work because she needed to talk to me, find out what's going on. Why is your wife over there with that baby crying? You see, I'm taking on responsibilities, yet I'm not. I'm a husband, a father. I got response. I'm not living up to none of that stuff, you know, and, and and this is the route I took. I began to buy materialistic stuff to make up for my guilt and my shame, you know, giving people gifts and wondering why I'm giving them these gifts. And they're looking at me like, I don't want this, you know, well, all right, give it back. <laughs> don't hurt my feelings. I'll take it back to the store, get my money back and go right to the liquor store. But I left that part out. And that's how things went. You know, um, I ended up losing my job and having to move in with my parents. Me, my wife. Now, what's wrong with this picture? I'm the guy who's supposed to be setting the path for my brothers and sisters on how to live life. I'm doing pretty good, aren't I? You know, left home, went to the military, bombed out of that, now I'm back home again. You know, um, I'm a great starter. I've started a lot of things. You know, started several careers, started a family. Never finished none of it. The only thing I finished was my drinking career. Thank God. Um, You know. And, and, I mean, people, everybody around me kept saying, you know what, you have an issue. Do you see, you know, you hurt your mom. They used to tell me this stuff. My uncles would sit down. Now, they're drunks. I'm looking at them drunk telling me what I'm doing to my mom. So my answer was, what are you doing to your mom? Boy, don't you get smart with me. I'll knock you out. (laughs) You got to catch me first. You know, that? Well, I, I don't get it. You know, and I am wondering why the relationship in the home, I mean, I'm just tearing the home up. There are arguments going on behind closed doors that shouldn't be going on because of me. Because of me. And the way I'm living my life. My sister has, has resented me so much that she called me everything but my name. You know, and my baby sister, to this day, still does not speak to me. The damages of alcoholism. Um, I remember one time I, I took my son fishing. And um, we were out in she Head Bay. And if you know about the bay, it's ocean. A lot of water. More than you can drink. And I'm about half drunk. Fishing off the pier. Catching nothing but cold ones. I bought my son a brand new pole. never forget it was gold. It was, a, it was a beautiful pole. I mean, I admired that pole. I admired that pole so much. The first time he went to cast it, he let it go. And it went. And instinct said, go get the pole. So I ran, and I jumped off the pier. Now, the only thing wrong with that picture is, I can't swim. Water. A lot of water has a way of bringing, uh, getting you sober real quick. Thank God for some older gentlemen on the pier who dragged my drunk behind out of that ocean because, woo. And, and I tell you that story because that's how I live my life. Those are the kind of decisions I made, you know? Um, and I guess, and I say this in all seriousness for whatever reason, this woman stuck with me for 15 years. And I put her through it, you know. Not only did I destroy her life, and I'm talking about, I've already damaged my parents. Now I've moved on, see, because wherever you go, you will damage everything you touch. Now I'm damaging a beautiful young lady. I'm damaging children's lives who don't even deserve Now I have a daughter, you know. Through all of the chaos, a daughter is born to me. I wasn't even there for her birth. I was away in some rehab, you know, because people were trying to help me. They were trying their best to help me, you know. And they would send me, and I would sit in these rooms, and big, those old rehabs. You know, with the, I didn't like it, first of all, because you had to wear those hospital gowns with the back out. And I always had the small one. And I'm looking at all these people in there who are, are older than me. I'm not looking at you, Joe, older than me. And instead of trying to identify, I'm comparing. I'm listening to them talk, I'm like, I'm not as bad as you, because as far as I'm concerned, I got a job, I got a wife. I think I got one, Um, because the illness will keep you thinking that. It will keep you stuck in denial, you know. But she stayed with me for 15 years. Why, I don't know. Um, And (laughs) the best thing that could have happened, I made the decision one day after another lie of I'm going to do it, and, and, you know, those... Those promises, and, you know, I mean, I really meant it when I said it. Because by this point, my son is crying looking at me asking me to daddy stop. My daughter's crying, daddy stop. And I'm looking at her and I'm crying and I'm meaning it at that time. I'm going to stop. But once that moment passes and you get back out there in the world and that obsession and that compulsion hits us alcoholics, it's a done deal. That frothy emotional appeal means nothing. So I came home one day after a relapse, and I took my ring off, I took my watch off, I took the keys off and left them in the house, and I walked away from my family, and I never looked back. I'm going to live my life the way I want to live it. You know, I believe today when I look at that situation, in order for me to be standing here, that's what needed to happen, because I would have continued to take them down. We had lost a couple of houses, and we were on the verge of losing the house that we had. You know, Why is it that drunks manage to obtain good stuff and then and, and, and just lose it? I mean, I don't even have a driver's license today as a result of my past. But back then, being drunk, I had a, license. I had a CDL, a brand-new truck sitting in the driveway, and I'm a drunk. Go figure. <clears throat> so I left them, and I went on a run to end all runs. And um, I was talking to my girlfriend, and we were talking about prison, which is why I'm glad you guys are here. Because if you listen to me, you don't have to deal with me, and the gentleman's going to follow me did. She said, boy, baby, one day... It's too much time for me. Well, I said, baby, try 3,650 days in prison. Because as as a direct and indirect result of alcoholism, that's how much time I did. And for you math wizards, that's 10 years. Um, Even then, I didn't, I couldn't connect the two. It was her fault. It was his fault. They snitched me out. And the reality of it was, I met a little guy who ended up, no, nah, I can't say that. Boy, you guys really, he became real close to me. I'll just leave it at that. He had glasses. His name was Will. And as short as he was, he had forms like Popeye. I always had wife describe him. He was the only one in there man enough to tell me to my face, no matter how big I was, what I needed to hear. And what he said to me made me so mad I could have ran him through that brick wall on that weight pile. But you know what I realized in in, in recovery? If you get mad, there's probably some truth to it. Because if it's a lie, you're not going to get mad. And he continued to address me like that. He wasn't intimidated by me because I I can be intimidating when I want to, except to my girlfriend. She intimidates me. And I got to ride home with this woman to sleep with her tonight. Can't come home, honey. No. No. But he began to show me myself because what God did was remove all the distractions. They removed all the excuses. They removed everything because nobody wanted nothing to do with me. That's, you know, I come from a prominent family. (sighs) My brother went into the, my my baby brother who they thought was going to be nothing. I was going to be something. My baby brother did six years in the Army, two tours in Iran, got his master's degree while he was in the military, and he works for the Pentagon right now. That's the one who wasn't going to be nothing. My two younger sisters, my one younger sister, she's a college professor at New York University. And my other sister, she's getting ready to start another career. She just came to visit me. She's got two degrees. She's going into the housing authority, managing apartment complexes and stuff. Me, I work at a warehouse. Um, And that's good. That's right where I need to be. And I don't deserve that. I need to say that I don't deserve that. You know, one thing that I've come to realize about God, that that he is uh, merciful instead of justified, I guess is the word I'm looking for. He dishes out mercy because I received a lot of grace and mercy. Um, Those ten years of my life were probably the longest years, you know. I wouldn't wish that on nobody, you know, but um, that's what I needed. That's what it took for me to open my eyes because I was a hard-headed alcoholic. He couldn't tell me nothing. I had my own agenda, and God, no man, could pull me away from it. You know, every time you close the door, I'd open it right back up, by hook or by crook. That's the kind of drink I was. I was the guy that you always hear about, you know, the little joke going around, the guy who could sell you the bridge. That wasn't a joke. That's me, you know, back in my drinking. And I sold a few bridges, too. I, think, I guess I can say that now. The statute of limitations probably war, but um, I'm just, just kidding. This is recorded, Stu. <laughs> um I found Alcoholics Anonymous in prison because of guys like you, because of my sponsor who's probably been the greatest help in my life, you know. I remember sitting in the meetings in AA in prison in the back, just as antisocial arms folded, screw facing people, you know, because we had to have that demeanor about us, you know. And that little guy Will was there and a few other people there was a guy at that particular time named Carter. I have to mention him because he's a big part of my life, too. Carter was another guy, you know. <laughs> wow. Um, next to Tom I, he's the next walking big book I know. And I, I, not, when I say walking, I mean he lives the program. Been in prison almost 30 years with a life sentence. And no matter what happens, no matter what happens in his life, he grabs that program. He drags sponsees out into that hot yard, and he works with them. You know, and they're going to work with him because if you know Carter like I know him, when he says sit down and read the big book, you're going to sit down and read the big book. I got to go to the bathroom. No. He's not that bad. used to be. Um, but he taught me a lot. Um, I remember taking a third, and this is almost unheard of for any ex-cons in the room. Getting on your knees with another man in prison just doesn't sound right, you know. Uh, and I wasn't going to do it, but I did it. You know, and I remember what happened, but I know when I came up, something was different because I was crying, and I hadn't cried in years, unless I was faking it to try to get some money.
1: <laughs>
2: some things began to happen, you know, and uh, I began working with other alcoholics. I started it in embracing this program, you know. Um, I took it serious. Now, I watched Dean. And the way he carries himself, you know. Some of the first time I saw Dean, I know you guys hear this at every conference year after year, you know. But he um, used to have the guys, volunteers coming. I didn't know what volunteers were. And I remember sitting in a meeting one time, and I seen Dean walk and the first thought came to me. I said, man, what in the world did he do? He's got to come in here on the weekend or on the weekday in his street clothes and sitting here with us. <laughs> you know. <laughs> then he got up there and he announced himself. I'm like, man, he's high now. You know, that's just that's just the way he talks. That's just the way he talks. Guess what? I want to talk like that one day because that has got to be the hardest work. I lived with that bear for over a year. Thank you, Dean. Because he took me in his home straight out of prison. Straight out of prison. Um... And I lived with him. Yet I didn't. By that I mean I never saw him. I don't know when he sleeps to this day. He works, and he goes to AA. He works. I have never seen a man miss a commitment, except for family special occasions, like his mom's birthday or his dad's something, or somebody's sick. Other than that, I can see him coming. Hey, man, how you doing? Uh." He'd be at the computer. Next thing I know, i catch you later. Where you going? I got to go to Wayne. I got to go to... Wilmington, okay, I'll see you tomorrow. <laughs> I got on to Virginia, but he stays on the go. I talk like that, too. I'm talking like that now, running off about eight hours of sleep. I don't know when the last time he had that many hours. He wouldn't know what to do with eight hours of sleep. But God bless him because it's for guys like him and other people in this room that you open the doors for guys like me. He allowed me to live my life. He's guided me. He still does. You know, I've since moved out. But in the process, let me wind this up real quick. Because I want to be honest, I've lost all track of time. When you start talking about the family, you can't put time on that. You know, and like I said, listening to you, Joe, opened up a lot of, you know, I'm dealing with some emotions right now. (laughs) Plus, I got some news not too long ago, you know. Uh, My girlfriend knows about it. I shared it with Dwight Dean, my daughter. But, uh. It gives me a lot to be grateful for, too, because I wasn't there for, for my daughter's prom. I don't know who our first boyfriend was. I know who he is now.
1: <laughs>
2: um, wow, sorry. Um, but I remember listening to Dean real quick one day. I think I had been out about six, eight months I had been with you, and he came and he said, It's time. I said, what do you mean? He said, it's time to find your family. It's time to make those amends. He said, I don't know how to find them. He said, there's a wonderful thing that you've been missing all this time. It's called computers. And he showed me how to pull up some people finders. And bam, lo and behold, my brother's name comes up. And it shows a Florida address. So I wrote this address. Now, i got to back up real, real quick. That baby sister I have was I have two. The baby sister I had wrote me a letter while I was in prison and told me that mom and dad had died because of you. Don't write here no more. We want nothing to do with you. And she meant that. And I sent two more letters after that, and they came back unopened. (coughs) So I I write this letter. We pray over it. He said, what are you going to do? I said, at this point, after all I've been through, I ain't got nothing to lose. I'm going to mail it. I mailed it, thought nothing else about it. I'm sitting in IHOP, Rocky Mountain. My phone rings, and I listen to the phone. And I don't remember nothing after that, because I think I dropped the phone and the eggs. I turned all kinds of shades. The waitress came running over. My girlfriend's freaking out, like, what's wrong with you? What's wrong? And I said, just everybody back up. I got to get here. I can't breathe. Get. I felt like I was in that cell again. For a split second, I went outside. And what that was was a phone call from my mother. Now, here all these years, I'm thinking my mom was dead because I took my sister and never lied to me before. So I thought. Um, And I went outside, and and I told my girlfriend, and she's like, you're kidding. You're lying. Stop playing. That ain't funny. And I'm like, I'm dead serious. I listened listen to the recording. So I sat down. We prayed real quick, and I called her. And she was just like, I'm so glad you're alive. I got to say this real quick also. The reason that all of that transpires when I started getting in trouble with the law and I got into some major trouble, my mom went behind my dad's back and took about five grand out of their retirement money to pay for a lawyer for me. And that, so again, the illness, once again, what it does to the family. Um, So I talked to my mom. I went, we drove back to the house. I talked to her some more. She said, look, I don't care what, you're still my son. I will always love you. And I'm so glad you're okay. And that, that, that just began to open up one door after the next. You know, because shortly after that, she told me that, well, you know, Olivia d- divorced you. I said, well, great. You know, that's good. She deserves to be happy. <laughs> really? Um, she's remarried. I said, that's
1: good. That's real good.
2: Um, she's living in Trent, New Jersey. You know, David and Melanie are doing good. You know, David's been grown up. He's went to school. he got his associates. Bing, ding, ding, all the good stuff that I missed. Uh, I'll, pass, I'll pass on to Olivia that you called and let her make the decision. Later on, I found out that when she'd done that, Olivia, who's, God bless her, she's a devout Christian, she had years earlier had forgiven me. That was the only way she told me that she could move on with her life. Um, and when she found out that I was alive, she immediately called the kids and said, I have something to tell you. Your father's alive, and we want you, it's up to you to call him and it wasn't too shortly after that. Dean can remember the moments because I started getting phone calls that were blowing me away. You know, I think I've done more crime in the last couple of years being out of prison than I've done in the last, did I say I was 25? <laughs> yeah, see what I mean by that line? I'm 49. Soon to be 50, as my girlfriend reminds me. Um, and that's opened up a lot of doors, you know, and allowed me to make amends. I have a beautiful relationship with my kids today. My son texted me the other day. He said, Dad, I'm just so glad we're looking forward to having fun this summer so we can make up a lost time. And I cut him off real quick. Son, I'm through with trying to make up a lost time. Let's live for today, and let's see what happens tomorrow. But right now, let's have fun today. I'm not trying to make up a lost time. I can't get those years back. I'm not going to try. That sister who separated everybody, I get a phone call about, I guess a month ago it was. It's been a month at my girlfriend's house. It was her house at the time. Now it's our house. Um, that's right. I said it. <coughs> um, and it's my sister. She said, listen, I'm driving down to visit your brother and we're coming to see you. OK, you said that a couple of times. I didn't think nothing of it. So I told Kathy, she's like, they're coming
1: up. They up?
2: She freaks out every time. You got to meet some family members because she's met my kids and fell in love with them. And that's a good thing. You know, they, I, I think she cried more than the kids when they came to visit me. Oh, I, I got away from that. They did come to see me. They, they, they did come, slow down, George. They did come to see me. And we had a wonderful reunion. And then my, bro, my sister and my brother show up, you know, and that was another reunion. And that's just, all of that is a direct result of Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, having people in my life like Dean Dwight. I know I'm going to regret saying this, even Michael J., and knowing Tom, Tom probably remembers me, because he came to see me in prison. He had this big belt buckle. I'll never remember that. I said, I want that buckle, but they wouldn't let us have that in prison. You know, but it was guys like that, and Steve, who isn't here, or maybe he is, and other people I've met since I've been out, Mark, Michelle. There's a lot of people that play a part in my life, and they don't know it. Principals group, you guys have been wonderful. Probably the hardest thing I had to do was leave you guys. But I'm not gone. I'm going to show up like a a ward (laughs) when you least expect me and just annoy you. But it will be in a good way. Um, I don't know if my family will ever be 100% again, but I will say this. I think I have a better relationship now. You know why? Because the lies are gone, the alcoholism, the act of alcoholism. I still have the illness. I'm not going to get it twisted. It's gone. Um, they ask me a question, I give them an answer. You know, I I related to something that you said in your talk, when you're talking about you're having such a wonderful time. My sister did that when she came to see me. We're having a great time, and I'm like, okay. And she brings up this stuff that happened like 15 years ago, and I'm like, just ruin it. Just ruin the visit. Well, I want an answer. My sister's demanding, and I had to give one, because Kathy went to bed, and they came, and, you know, we came that time. And we did some serious talking, and... she cried, and I never seen my sister cry, and that was a good thing. Um, I'm sober today. I reach out and I try to help other people. I have a sponsor. I have a sponsor. I'm working. I'm in a relationship. That's another job and another talk for another type of meeting, but it's good. Because I can manage all that today. I feel I have emotions, and you know what? I have not. You know, by the grace of God, October, I'll be celebrating 10 years. I have not had a desire, nor a thought, to drink. And I've been hit with more more bullets than I have time to tell you guys about, you know. But I thank you guys for what you're doing and letting you know, those of you who do do it, you're not doing it in vain because I'm just one of many. I know the only thing you hear about on the news is the ones who fail, but there are a lot of success stories sitting out here. I'm looking at some of them. You know, and it's because of you guys coming in them prisons bringing us hope when we, because I was hopeless. I was hopeless. And it took somebody like Dean to reach me. Little did I know when that guy got up there wearing them bib bib coveralls and painter whites that he would be my sponsor. Because I couldn't identify with him, but I do now. Not only is he my sponsor, he's my best friend. And with that being said, that's all I got.
3: My name is Dwight Collins and I'm an alcoholic. Uh, My sobriety birthday is October the 3rd of 2005. I'm also a member of the Primary Purpose Group of Wilson. Uh, We meet on Mondays and uh, Thursdays now from 7 to 8, come and see us at the Raleigh Road Baptist Church. Uh, I had a method to my madness. I called Dean, think Thursday, and he was getting the program together. I said, let George go first. (laughs) And uh, so I got about three minutes. But uh, how much time do I got left? All right, that's cool. Um, but uh, I want to thank Joe for chairing this meeting and uh, filling in last year. because I couldn't make it, I'll tell y'all in a few minutes why I wasn't here. And uh, thank George for knocking out all that time. Uh, <clears throat> I'm a little bit nervous, man. Uh about 20 minutes ago, I was calm. And uh, then when I knew he was wrapping it up, man, I started getting a little nervous again. I don't think I was this nervous when I was sitting in front of that judge when he was talking about giving me all them years in the penitentiary. Um, You know, Dean gave me a little pep talk right before I got up here, man. He said, uh, said, don't worry about giving your store and qualifying. He's like, go straight to the point. Uh, This is uh, something pretty serious. Um, I'm going to qualify through talking about what I did to my family. Um, you know, a lot of times in Alcoholics Anonymous meetings, you know, I hear people talk about, you know, they come from an alcoholic home. You know, George is just talking about his dad's liquor cabinet. I didn't have that. Uh, the only liquor in our house was on the top shelf in the cabinet, and it was a bottle of moonshine with some tin foil over it, uh, and it was for municipal purposes. Um, <laughs> I was raised in a church, I went to church every time the doors open. vacation Bible school, the whole nine yards, uh, visitations, Wednesday nights we was there. Um, my parents raised me the best they could. Uh, I had two loving parents that stayed married until my dad passed away, you know, they was married for 33 years. Uh, they tried to teach me, you know, the principles that I try to live by today. Um, as a result of my drinking, I started having consequences uh, real early on. Uh, I can remember being 14 or 15 years old, and as a result of my alcoholism, me and my family already going to counseling. Because um, I'm blaming Dad because he's out working all the time to buy me all this nice stuff I got, but he ain't spending no time with me. Um, you know, it's all about me. And um, that's just the way it was. Um, Put it bluntly, man. I put my parents and anybody that came in contact with me through absolute hell. Uh, The book talks about we make, you know, people neurotic. Uh, I did that tenfold. Um, You know, talk about hearing Joe and George talk, man. I was just sitting here thinking back. Some of the looks my, you know, mom and dad gave me, some of the BS I would shoot in just to try to do what I do. Um, I became a continuous drinker when I was about 13 years old. I became a daily drinker when I was probably 15. Uh, as a result of my alcoholism, when I was 17 years old, I graced the doors of uh, that real nice place that BJ was talking about in Morganton, North Carolina, called the High Rise. Um, I can remember going. I had chances before that. You know, I'd already got into trouble before I went to prison. They seen me to mental health and. They had, they got this question they ask you. Do you think your family would be embarrassed about you being incarcerated or getting locked up? No. (laughs) You know, I mean, I just, it never dawned on me that, and that's what I answered every time they asked me that question because I went to that class a whole lot. Uh, I had a good lawyer. Uh, (laughs) But, uh, they would ask me that, and I'd be like, no, nah. because uh, it was something common. You know, I had a cousin. I didn't have a drunk uncle. Most people got a drunk uncle. I had a drunk cousin, and um, and that was my introduction to drinking was him. He come to a Christmas party one time, and he had on, he's, he's a redneck. My wife about for it. And uh, he had on a black leather trench coat, and it was Christmas, and it sounded like Jingle Bells. <laughs> And he had thirty-two airplane bottles of Crown Royal in his (laughs) pockets. And my grandma, (laughs) she'd tell the boy, "It's gonna kill you." And uh, but it didn't that day. He was having him a ball, but he was jingling. He was in the spirit. Uh, But that was, you know, pretty much my introduction to seeing, you know, somebody, you know, drinking and stuff like that. Uh, You know. My parents, you know, George talks about how his mom never gave up on him. Uh, My parents uh, did everything they could to keep me from going where I went. Uh, They bought me everything I wanted. They did everything I wanted them to do. Um, And in return, I was just 100% self-centered alcoholic. I didn't know that at the time. I didn't know I was an alcoholic. I thought I was a teenager doing what teenagers do. Uh, When I get old enough, I'll get into church like they are, and I'll be okay. Um, God had other plans. Uh, I landed in the penitentiary at 17 years old. Um, Real quick, you know, if this don't qualify, nothing will. I've been convicted of four felonies. I couldn't tell you how many misdemeanors. I've got seven DUIs on my record, and um, I think that qualifies me enough as an alcoholic. Uh, Every one of those is related to alcohol. I've never had a ticket. Beyond a seatbelt and speeding ticket or any kind of charge where I wasn't drunk. Um, I'm in prison, 17 years old, and all I want is my mama.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and I
3: mean, that's it, man. And uh, my dad made sure I had my mama every Sunday. Now, this just how good my dad enabled me. When I was in the penitentiary, They give you some nice brown khaki pants that ain't stitched real good. And back in, you could have cash. And my dad would perfectly fold up a $20 bill every Sunday and give it to me. And I'd slip it right there so I could buy my cigarettes. Um, He'd do anything he could to make me happy. Uh, And that's what I believe that's why I drank as long as I did because I didn't have the consequences behind it. Sounds crazy, but even being in prison, it wasn't bad. I was like BJ. I found the ones that was doing what they was doing, and I gravitated. I fit right on in. Uh, It wasn't that bad, and it sounds absolutely stupid coming out of my mouth right now. Uh, But, uh, you know, by then, you know, I I done had three DUIs at 17. Uh, You know, 3 o'clock in the morning, I'm calling Mom and Dad, come bail me out again, you know, both of them saying, leave him in there, and then the other one talking the other one in to come in and get me. Um, and most of the time, it was my dad that would come and get me, and he'd say it again. He'd pick me up, boy, you just stupid. And uh, I wished he was still alive, so I'd say, no, nah, Daddy, I wasn't stupid. I was an alcoholic. Um, <laughs> but I wound up in prison at 17 years old uh on a 20 month sentence um and every visitation until they took them away from me uh, my parents was there i never thought about what that did to them the stress that that put on them uh you know not counting the money they spent um you know if i would have to pay back my parents the money they gave me i, I could never do it um I got out of prison. Uh, I was going to try that plan BJ was talking about last night. I I love his talk, man. That was right up my alley. Beer, sell a little pot, we good to go. Um, Worked out about a week and a half. (laughs) And um, it was right back to it. My dad owned a landscape company. And um, I worked for him off and on when he dug. And we and we had the contracts to mow cotton mills. Well, Dad would be like, I got your interview. I'm like, all right. He's like, you need to get you some benefits and insurance. And that's what, you know, I thought that's what he was trying to help me do. And he'd get me these good jobs. And it was, he was just tired of dealing with me at work. Um, and I don't blame him, man. Uh, he'd have to pay guys like an hour and a half to wait while he tried to get me out of the bed. And he would not leave until he got me out of the bed. Um and I can sit here and go on and on and on and on and on about some of the, you know, sacrifices they made, uh, you know, to, to try to help me. Um, I found out about three years ago that my mom and dad went to al when I was 16 years old. I never knew that. Um, my dad is an old country boy, so I'm sure he didn't stay too long.
1: Um,
3: and... um <laughs> I had some, you know, I, I used to steal money. I just didn't steal money. Deans told me about hitting his daddy's stash and stuff before. I stole a whole checkbook one time.
1: And uh, I was hood
3: rich for about three weeks. And uh, if y'all don't know what that is, that means it's a lot of money, real fast, and it's going real fast. Um, and I didn't think nothing about how they was going to have to. Pay for that, you know. I thought overprotection was a plan that the bank covered their money. That ain't what it is. And uh, and it, it just all started snowballing again, man. Um, you know, I completely destroyed every relationship I had with any family that I had. Uh, my brother, you know, I got two older brothers. One's about George's age. He's he's old. <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> i got and he was by my dad's first marriage, and uh then I got one brother that's four years older than me, and me and him was pretty close coming up uh I looked up to him, you know he was my role model, then he met his wife when he was sixteen, and uh she stole him from me, so I hate her and uh <laughs> she knew it, and she hated me too uh today we get along really well um but i i I broke into their house, you know uh not long after I got out of prison, um, I wasn't going to steal the small things either. And uh, <laughs> fam are a lot less to press charges than other people. So that's what I did. And um, I stole a bunch of guns from my brother, and uh, he still hadn't let me forget that. But um, I just destroyed those relationships, just ripped them apart, man, uh just took life out of everybody I come in contact with, girlfriends, girlfriends, parents. I mean, it's unreal with the damage I've caused to the people I've been around because of alcoholism. Um, You know, I was able to stick to some of these promises, uh, you know, that I'm I'm good at telling people and I'm going to do different and I'm going to quit drinking and I'm going to pay bills and be responsible and... I, I could do that for a little while, and then, you know, hey, mama, can y'all come bail me out of jail? Um, it, it ain't a fun feeling when you wake up from a blackout. I was in downtown Greensboro at a club. I come to in a little bitty room, and it ain't nobody around. It ain't no activity. Uh Finally, about six hours into it, somebody walks by, and I knock on that door, and he looks in there, and he looks confused, and he's like, what are you doing in there? And I'm like, I don't know. (laughs) And, um, they had forgotten to put me down there. That's bad. They didn't know I was down there. And, um, I got to looking around, and my knuckles are all scratched up, and I got grass stains on my pants. It ain't no grass downtown Greensboro. (laughs) And, um. You know, I got out, went upstairs and I called daddy. You know, can you come pick me up? You know, lock me up again. All oh, right, I'll be out there in about an hour. And uh get in the truck, boy, you just stupid. And um, I believed that for a long time. <laughs> but it just all kept happening, it kept happening. I get in trouble, they bail me out, I get in trouble, they bail me out. Um, in two thousand and three my dad passed away. Um And I had had it it together for a little while when that happened. Uh, I was still drinking, but just a bare minimum to get by. And uh, when he passed away, they gave me the excuse to drink like I wanted to. And uh, that's when it set in on my mom like it was no tomorrow. Um, It was bad. Um, Instead of letting my mom grieve my daddy's death, I tried my best to make her feel sorry for her baby boy. Uh... It's going to be hard for me to talk about the rest right now. Um, I'm going to do my best. Y'all bear with me for a second. The next two years, I put my mom through absolute hell. She had me committed. Let me back up. I, lost a, I got married a month before my dad died. Lost my dad. Three months later, I lost my father-in-law. Three months after that, my wife got killed in a car wreck. Uh, So all that childhood faith I was brought up with, with the understanding of God at the time, went out the window. I did everything but put a gun in my mouth to try to kill myself for the next two years. And my mom sat there and watched it. And did what she could to try to keep me from doing those things. Um, She had me committed in 2005 uh, for the fear Of her safety and my own. That's a direct result of alcoholism. Nobody's parents should have to feel that way about their son. Um, I went to the detox, got out uh, about four months later. Got a DUI on my birthday. Uh, My probation got violated a month before that. And the best idea I could come up with, because I had done tried to quit drinking that a couple times was to go to the penitentiary i told my lawyer i said do what you got to do let's get a combined sentence and let's go to the penitentiary Uh, that's one of those ideas that sounds real stupid right now Uh, but at the time i mean that's the best idea i had i had run out of options Uh, i tried AA when i was 17 and y'all was just a bunch of old white guys thanks sir and, um, when I got as old as y'all were and I couldn't go to the club and do what I do, I'd be here too.
1: Um, <laughs> I got here a lot earlier, <laughs>
3: but, um, I wound up in the penitentiary, man. And, um, I go through with what they had then it was called a dark program, um,
1: ain't nothing I hadn't heard, man. I went
3: through the dog program first time I was in a penitentiary. I've been going to counseling since I was 15 years old. I knew everything you want to know about alcoholism. I just wanted an alcoholic. <laughs> um, I just had bad luck, man. They liked to catch me when it was bad. And, um, you know, I went through the motions of the penitentiary, and uh, they sent me to Wayne. Uh, I hadn't been to Wayne. Didn't want to go to Wayne. Didn't care nothing about Wayne. Just three hours away from home, I couldn't get no visits. Wasn't interested. Uh, got there about two weeks in. They called AA. Uh, I walked in the meeting. Seen Dean sitting in there. When I walked in the meeting, uh, a guy named Carter Downs greeted me. He said, hey, how you doing? And he was smiling. Had no idea why this man was smiling. We in the penitentiary. Ain't nothing happy about none of this. <laughs> and uh, walked on in the room and there's a bunch of other guys in there smiling. I think you Big old dude over here was, and uh, I thought, man, these guys in here ain't right, man. <laughs> and, uh, I thought that, and then I seen a coffee pot, and I was like, they're happy because we got free coffee. <laughs> and uh, Carter read a statement after that meeting. It says, uh, "If you need a sponsor, come see me." I didn't really know nothing about a sponsor at the time. Um, I'm in real big into racing sponsors. When you give me money to put. Your you name of your company on the side of my car. <laughs> I thought he was going to give me some money. And, um,
1: <laughs>
3: I went up to him. I said, I need a sponsor. He says, all right. And he called this big dude over. And um, he said, this is Thomas. And I'm a pretty tall guy, man. I got to look at you. You're a real tall guy. And when he stuck his hand out, he had some lightning bolts, swastikas, Flames, and I was like, damn. You know? Uh, <laughs> if you ever been to prison, you look at people and you say, I wonder what he's in here for. You ain't had to do that with him.
2: <clears throat> <laughs> he had killed two or three
3: people. <laughs> and I was sure of it. And I didn't know about being a sponsor no more. But uh anyway, man, he had some stuff going on. He couldn't be a sponsor. He's a big old red-headed dude. And um, I went back to call it. I said, I need a sponsor. it ain't working out with Thomas. He's like, all right. He said, Tim, come here. Tim, red-headed too, man. But he wasn't about this tall. And I was like, something go down, I can take him.
1: <laughs> and uh,
3: they like giving you different color clothes when you do good in prison. He got his different color clothes and went to another camp. And I went to call it. I said, man, I'm stuck, man. So I need a sponsor. He says, well, man, I'll do it. I say, cool, deal. My life uh, had already started changing. I hadn't. I wasn't asking mama for as much money. Um, <laughs> you know, when I first went to AA, I was like, "Mama, I'm an alcoholics anonymous. Doing great. Gonna stay out of prison. Can I get the money order?" <laughs> and um, I was gradually getting better because uh, I, I, I used to demand money in my account. You know, you owed me that. I'm your son. I'm in prison. You know, feel sorry for me, even though I put myself there. Um, But some things started changing, man. I I stopped asking them to come see me. Uh, That was hard. Uh, Gas, when gas first started going up. And uh, Mama's help started going down. And uh, she still took a phone call every week. And uh, she sent me $15 every week. That was enough to get my cigarettes and uh, a couple of soups lasting through the week. And uh, she's still taking care of me. Um, long story short, man, uh, God works in my life, man. Uh, through Carter, my life changes. Um, Comes the time to get out of penitentiary, and I'm talking to my mom about going to. I'm talking to my mom about going to. Uh, Wilson, and that's what she tells me. That's what I do. Uh, I wind up in Wilson, hit the ground running. Um, as a result of Alcoholics Anonymous, you know, uh, all those minute relationships, you know, I've been able to mend them. You know, my brother, about two, about three years sober, I made my amends to him. And he looked at me and said, you're a con man. You've always been a con man, and you're always going to be a con man. Today, he pretty much calls me on a daily basis. Uh, me and my sister-in-law have told each other we love each other and embraced each other and meant it. Um, and, and I'm going to sum this up right here. I'm not the same person I was when I come into Alcoholics Anonymous uh, six years ago. Uh, my attitudes and outlooks have changed. Um, And this is going to be real difficult right quick. I'm going to wrap it up. Mike gave me the five-minute sign. Um, As a result of alcoholism, you know, Dean had asked me last year to come and give his talk. Um, My mom had double pneumonia and was battling COPD for about 17 years. She had emphysema. She was in the hospital. It's a gift today. Uh, It's a year ago today. That would buried her. Um, I was supposed to give his talk last year instead. I was holding her hand when she get, took her last breath. Um, it's sad, but at the same time, man, that's the most powerful thing Alcoholics Anonymous has gave me. Um, uh, I was there for her when she needed me. You know, today I'm able to be a husband. I got my own little Carter at home. Uh, I named my son after Carter my life is more than what I thought it would ever be uh, I don't deserve nothing on my own I end up in the penitentiary and it's uh, where y'all got to come in and try to give me a little bit of a solution uh, today I'm able to be a volunteer at that prison I got sober in and uh, you know I never thought I'd be happy to see a guy light up when he sees me uh,
1: laughter
3: But today I am, man. I can go to that penitentiary, man, and see those guys, and like, what's up, man? It's good seeing you. Uh, And uh, it's just amazing. Uh, I want to thank Dean for, you know, giving me the opportunity to get up here and do this again, you know. And uh, once again, I want to thank Joe for filling in last year for me, and I want to thank George for taking up most of the time.
0: Thanks to George, we're going to have a seven-minute break.